Hello and welcome back to the Pretty Serious Bike Racing Podcast. We're into September. It is time for overlapping races. I love this time of year because I get to watch bike racing morning, noon, and night. I know lots of people, particularly those who host things like the Placeholders Podcast, complain about this time of year. But hey, we get to talk about the Vuelta today. We get to talk about the CMAC Ladies Tour today. And we get to talk about the Grand Prix Quebec and Montreal. Lots to talk about here on the Pretty Serious Bike Racing Podcast. I can't wait to do it with my co-host, bike racing analyst extraordinaire, Cosmo Catalano. Hello. How are you, Cosmo? I'm excited to have races in my own time zone. So I can Yeah. Not even that far away from you. We just just a couple I I thought about going up. It didn't uh no, it's not even I mean it's a Montreal people would spontaneously go to Montreal when I was in college, which granted is two hours closer to Montreal than I am right now, but um no, it, Wait, where did you go to college? I went to Dartmouth College in Hanover, New Hampshire. It is a small college, sir, but there are those who love her. Daniel Webster. Yeah, I feel like I call you bike racing analyst extraordinaire. I could also call you, you know, Ivy League scholar, Cosmo Catalano. I consider myself an Ivy League frat basement uh, expert more than I think a traditional scholar. If you need, If you need a detailed guide to where and how to get excessively intoxicated in disgusting surroundings... I can do that uh, if you're in Hanover, New Hampshire. Just like, oh, my How? beta is 20 years out of date. But I could do an Animal House tour. It would be pretty cool. fun. Um, awesome. Some of the references still hold up. So, yeah. Uh, also joining us, you've already heard her. Abby Mickey, host of the Wheel Talk podcast. Uh, Colorado alumna and former bike racing pro. Abby, welcome back to the show. Well, I was just wondering because I I may have graduated from the University of Colorado Boulder, but I went to University of Vermont in the beginning of Woo! my collegiate career. Yeah. Go Cats. So I was like, oh, two hours from uh, from Montreal. I was nice. there too. There a lot of times we drove up. That's in New Hampshire, right? To where University the University of Vermont is. Oh, stop. <laughs> One bike race in Maryland and suddenly Dane thinks the Mid-Atlantic <laughs> is the most important place in the universe. <laughs> All right, let's talk bike racing. Let's. It wasn't even a world tour. Race. I know. Yeah, it was the largest race in the United <laughs> States, though. How about that? Uh, That's pretty sad. Yeah, it is. Before we get into the show, let me tell you that you should head on over to escapecollective.com/slash/join and sign up. And I'm telling you this because we are funded by our supporters like you. Well, hopefully like you. You can become a reader for just $6.99 USD a month. You can sign up for a full membership for $11.99 a month. You can save 30% with an annual membership, by the way. So there's all kinds of different ways for you to support what we're up to here at Escape Collective. And that includes, yeah, podcasts like this one, Wheel Talk, Placeholders, Geek Warning, everything we're doing over at escapecollective.com, debates between myself and Johnny Long about whether Sepkus can win the Vuelta, etc. And you'd also be just its joining a pretty cool community because our supporters are really cool. And on that note, let me toss out some shout-outs to some of our lifetime members. Our lifers deserve a lot of credit for being just so crucial to what we're doing here. And we got to say thanks to Omar Castillo, Kel McCulloch, James Hallisey, Kevin Johnston, and Olivia Evans. Thanks to all of you for being lifers. We really appreciate it. All right, on with the show. We've got the Vuelta. We've got the CMAC Ladies Tour, which was the final race of a very illustrious career. We're going to get to that. 
And then we just finished. We we literally, as I mean, we're we're Abby and I were sitting here in the call as we watched the finale of the GP Montreal. So lots of World Tour racing to to chat about today. Starting with the Vuelta, we are heading into the second rest day as of recording time. And as of recording time, none other than Mr. Sepp Kuss, American, Durango, Colorado native, is wearing red, which is pretty spectacular for American bike racing fans. It's been a little while since we had a race leader at a Grand Tour. Hold on. Did Kaylee say that Durango was his hometown just because the leader of the Vuelta is from his current place of residence i mean maybe he did say that on the placeholders Mm -hmm. podcast i could confirm i I listened to the placeholders podcast i don't know Mm -hmm. that there's any Mm -hmm. vermont based cyclists who lead grand tours in this day and age so i understand what he's going for here you know and he does live in durango he's lived there for a little while now there is unbound winner Ian Boswell, proud vermonter and he is vermonter's vermonter he is well when we get to tourist well, we get to gravel racing, you know, fine, <laughs> sure. Uh, but yeah, Sepkus leads the Vuelta España, and he does it now, I would say, a little bit more commandingly in a way, because the main rival to his team, Jumbo Visma, since we last had our conversation, Cosmo, didn't really, things didn't go his way. You got it. We got it. This non chronological stuff is going to confuse right, well, all of our. <laughs> I, I want to set the scene for where we are yes. in this conversation. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So previously. Yeah. Previously, previously on Cosmo, serious the, bike racing podcast. I'm doing the little in, recap at the beginning of the soap. In 30 seconds, how, what has happened since we last podcast? We, we finally, we finally got our sort of GC race situation a little settled with a TT on stage 10. The Ghana won. Remco was close. Sep held up really well. And a couple of maybe interlopery looking GC people became less uh, GC looking. Uh, but then on stage 13, our next mountain stage, uh, Remco just did not have it. Um, first time going uphill after a descent to start the stage. And he was pretty much out of it, like minutes, many, many, many minutes off the back, 20 minutes off the back at the end of the day. Uh, and, and Sepp Kuss and his teammates uh, went one, two, three. And now they are one, two, three on GC. And that's... That's pretty good. We saw Remco come back the next mountain day. He took the stage, but still like 16 minutes down. And then today's stage 15. He was in the break again. Was two seconds back at the line, but that really was due more to the tactics of the of, of Rui Costa and the group that contested the stage. Uh, and I kind of like to see it too, because uh, I remember back in the day, one, Ivan Basso collapsing spectacularly at the Giro and then coming back and winning three stages. I remember... Vinokurov having a really bad day and then suddenly having several impressively, possibly impossible good days. Um, and so to see Remco come back at the win, but also show the effort of that the next day is uh, reassuring, uh, let's say, as a cycling fan. Yeah, I think, so He he's clearly going for the mountains classification now. And after 15 stages, he is by far in the lead in that classification. Yeah, uh, which he's definitely not giving up. He's not just... You know, packing it in, good for him for, for still fighting. And obviously that was a very emotional stage 14 win uh, for him the day after he had such a horrible, horrible stage 13. Uh, so that's where we are. We have we have Yusef Kuz in the, in the race lead after 15 stages heading into this final week here. Uh, his teammate Primoz Roglic and his teammate Jonas Vingago filling out the current uh, you know provisional podium. Juan Ayuso, to me, 
well, he's in fourth, so the numbers suggest that he's the closest competitor. I also think he is the closest competitor. He's the one who maybe has the best chance of jumping into that podium battle. Uh, but yeah, let's let's break it down. Let, let's get into this race and, and where we are so far. Uh, let's kind of talk about some of the moments that have made the race since we last chatted on this podcast. And I want to get away from the GC battle a little bit first. There's all kinds of GC, GC things to talk about. I want to talk about Rui Oliveira real quick because the lead out that he put in on stage 12 to deliver Juan Sebastián Molano to victory in Saragossa was incredible, perfect, beautiful. He had about... Juan Sebastián Molano had to you know, do his sprint for the perfect amount of time. I think I think if you get dropped off with about 175 meters to go, that is, to me that's the that's the primo distance right there. That's because if it's any if it's more than 300 meters, there's a risk that you're going too far. If it's less than that, you know, you could get passed by somebody else, and then what's the point? I agree in principle, but I think perfect sprint distance varies rider and true. course and that's all true. that. But I I I see what you're saying that there is a there is a platonic perfect sprint unit right. That this exists is, uh, in every stage, and they nailed it. Okay, maybe if you're Alexander Kristoff, you want to be let out to about 3,000 meters to go, but most <laughs> people want to be let out to right around there, and it was really just an excellent job from Rui Oliveira, who's not a noted lead-out guy. I mean, we have to say, this is not someone who we tend to discuss as being lead-out man extraordinaire. He's kind of a domestique extraordinaire he doesn't he doesn't win a lot of bike races and by not a lot of bike races what i mean is when you go to his pro cycling stats page and you click on the wins section you'll notice there are none so this is clearly a rider who races in support of others but he did it quite perfectly uh there on on stage 12 and i finished fourth himself that's how far up he was at the end so once sebastian milano had to do very little but he did exactly what he needed to do to pip caden groves who is clearly the best sprinter thus far at this race so yeah hats off abby is that something that comes up a lot like do you find that there are domestiques or like secret secret lead out people whose primary job in the peloton is different and then one day they're like hey you're leading out and they just smash it i mean is yeah i i think there's there's riders that have uh that are good at something and they maybe get kind of pigeonholed into something for a while but that doesn't mean that they don't have other strengths and like Usually a domestique is going to be good at a lot of things. So slotting into a lead out train is something that they probably should be able to do pretty seamlessly unless they're like specifically a climbing domestique, which those those riders can pivot into like a GC leader pretty easily. Ha ha. Segue. <laughs> Just kidding. You know, that's I mean, technically you could use that as a segue. I'm gonna. I mean, <laughs> I've been prompted to. As, and as a fellow podcast host, I, you, I think, have a really good insight into what a good segue is, so I'm, I'm going to use it. Let's talk GC. I also want to point out that, like, domestiques in the World Tour Peloton were, like, top top of their class everywhere right. else. So, like, a guy who's, like, a domestique in the World Tour Peloton who can also slot into a lead-out, like, he was probably winning sprints in, like, the juniors. Um so they know how to they know how to do that. Yeah, and kind of to that point of having a lot of skills. I mean, this is. I remember when Marcel Kittle was at you know at the height of his powers. You would always hear that he was a hill climb champion too. You know, and he could actually time trial quite well. And it's one of those things where yeah, they are obviously known for this one thing, uh, and and they're all 
especially if you're a domestique, you need to be good at everything, as, as you said. All right, let's talk GC. Sepkus, I think he survived his way through the second week. He didn't have to do too much uh, in terms of facing his rivals because they kind of exploded on their own. Imploded? Exploded? I don't really know in what way they you know, Exploded. disintegrated. Whether it was outward or inward, but it was not good for Remco. Slowly decelerated. There weren't there weren't a well Remco obviously, but I think a lot of the, like I said after the TT, I think it was really an unsettled GC, and there were guys who were like, oh, you know, Mark Soler is doing really well, or or Lenny Martinez was up there, um, and it's just it's very like now we have kind of we, we beginning of the week we got our first GC, and now we're kind of seeing seeing th- people people can then you know do well or implode or etc i don't know i may i think you make a good point and actually lenny martinez is a great example of this where i think the, the question for seb Kuss as a as a race leader here is is he going to collapse at some point this is his third grand tour of the year is he going to have a bad day and in Fifth the end, grand tour in a row right yeah Oof. And, and in the end it's everybody else having the bad day it's his rivals having the bad day uh and and so he's been quite uh, impressive at surviving this race of attrition. All right, Remco completely collapsed, going over the Albisque. Not even he, they hadn't even reached the Tourmalet yet, and it was over for him as a GC contender at least. And all of a sudden, it's just it's Yumbo. It's a Yumbo dominated race. We didn't really get much of an explanation for Remco. I mean, there he didn't talk to media, which I don't begrudge him of that. I'm sure it was a pretty Shitty day, pardon my French. Uh, but we didn't really understand. We don't. We don't really know anything more about why he had such a bad day. All we know is that he immediately came out swinging the next day, won the stage the next day. So we don't really know why he failed so miserably on the Col d'Habisque and lost all that time. But here we are, uh, and Sepkus just like I said, he survived. I would also say it's important to note that he survived his own teammate trying to go for the stage win and getting a, a initially quite a big gap. Jonas Vingago decided to go win that Tourmalet stage. And as a good teammate, Sepquist did not chase him down until nobody else was around to follow him. Uh, and he did keep the gap relatively small. And at this point, it feels like that's kind of where we are. It's Sepquist looks like the heavy favorite unless his own teammates decide to keep doing that sort of thing. The Vinigo attack, I thought, was really cool because I really interpreted it as, you know, Vinigo, he didn't look great in the TT, and I think maybe he's he's under, you know, his top level, which is still outstanding. Um, and so he was sort of playing the Sep Kuss role, going for that early attack, trying to make the rest of the group chase, especially because it was it was, uh, it was was a very windy, a tailwind climb for a lot of that stretch, which I think would have made it really hard to get separation. And to sort of go to, to the way Kuss is riding, he didn't, he didn't try to make a separation except for when he got around to a section with a good headwind. You could kind of see him wind it up from the back of the field to kind of get that draft and then try to hit the front with a bunch of speed. Had to go around a fan, but it was still like very smart, very cerebral. It's the same way he rides in a support role where he's like, you know, I'm going to ride with this group. Okay, I'm dropping this group. What's the next best thing I can do? How can I get back up to the front? And I think he's doing that on GC too. And I think that's awesome to see. Yeah, I thought Kuss looked extremely strong when he did finish that stage off, uh, and that really gave me some confidence in his ability to kind of hold on should his teammates want to keep doing this, you know, going for stage wins. Uh, I do wonder, I mean, how are they going to play the next week? We'll get to this in a bit, what, what comes ahead of the next week, but there doesn't really seem to be... I, I don't see how any other teams are able to actually overhaul Yumbo here. I mean, I don't... 
I can't really see any scenarios where UAE is able to dislodge three Yumbo Riders from where they currently are. Am, 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 am I? Is there something I'm not thinking of here? Is there any way that this is going to change? I don't know how it can. I mean, it's pretty crazy that the three of them are currently the top three in the GC. And also that, you know, everybody, part of the reason that Kuss is on, is leading the race overall is because he's got those two guys um, that everyone was looking at when he went away in that breakaway to get the time that he, yeah, that secured him kind of the, the red jersey. And, but it's, it's just, nuts I feel like it's impossible maybe you're looking at the top three and it's like oh my gosh like a Yumbo Visma one two three but it's impossible to be disheartened by it because Kuss is the one leading I feel like <laughs> perhaps if it was if it was Vinigo leading or Roglic leading two guys who'd already won the other two Grand Tours of the year that it would have been a little bit easier to kind of be be bummed about it but I don't know how anyone could see how Sepp's been riding this year, like in all of the Grand Tours and also how he's riding right now and and not be and and his smile coming across the line at the on the Col de Tourmalet and not just be like, okay, this guy is something really special, which he is. Um but also like I think it would be incredible if he was able to keep the lead over the week I think it's not so much other teams unseating them as if Sepp can hold on to it for the final week um because he's got so much in the legs at this point and I think he's riding super well right now but he's also really young so you never know like when it's going to become derailed so uh, I have I have Two thoughts. First of all, I, I want to point out that uh, I believe the bookies' favorites at the start of the race were Vingago and then Roglic. So even I would be, I think it would be kind of boring if that were your one-two. If if Kuss weren't you know atop the leaderboard, I don't think it would be especially surprising. I think it would be the opposite of surprising. It's exactly what was expected by the people who make their money off of this sort of thing. So it is nice though that Kuss is up there because that that's kind of changes everything. That then it takes it from like just what we expected but boring to. Hey, look at this exciting thing where this guy finally gets his chance. Uh, but yeah, in terms of whether he can hold on, I, to me that the real question though is why wouldn't he if Yumbo is the team setting the pace? Because if Yumbo is the team setting the pace and he can't hold on, then it's kind of Yumbo's fault. It kind of to me comes down to how much do they really want Sepkus to win? Because if they put riders on the front, if Wilco Kelderman is doing you know big pulls at the front to set a pace, and that's what drops Sepkus. Then it's kind of the team's own fault, and it, I I would be kind of mad if I were Sepkus and that happened. I the only thing that comes to mind for me is more is less you know is Yumbo going to drop Sepkus and more how if he has a not great day how how long are they going to ride for him before they're like okay uh, maybe these two guys who are um you know between a minute and a half and two minutes behind you. When when do we throw the switch from ride for Kus to ride for Roglic or ride for Vinigo, depending on race situation? And I not that I am hoping um, that happens, but it could get extremely interesting uh, if you know Ayuso or Moss or somebody gets in a bigger breakaway, because they have you know obviously they're going to be watched closely, but you know they're they're getting you know the top ten is still eight minutes 
um, from the lead of the race. So the potential for big rider with some time and Sepku's bad day, what does Yumbo do? How do they, do they chase really hard to keep the gap down? Even if it's going to drop Coos, do they, do they let Roglic not gain time when he possibly can? It's just very, I, I see, I see some potential for this one, two, three at the top of the GC thing to create opportunities for enterprising opponents. While we're still talking about GC, Cosmo, last week we introed a little, little segment, little, little smart move versus questionable judgment, an opportunity for us to give out kudos or also give out. I don't know what's the opposite of kudos. Like tisks, uh, demerits, tisks, tisks, tisks. <laughs> yeah. Um, you have you have some tisks for for everybody who's you know not Yumbo and not Remco yeah, basically pr- on pretty stage much 14. yeah yeah stage fourteen the the GC group you know obviously had let Remco go and they all kind of just cruised into the finish on the one hand I get it like it's tough if you're in a small group three people from the same team leading the GC all super strong but at the same time like there's there's not all that much Vuelta left. And if you were planning to do something, that would have been a good time to try and do it, I think. Um, but it, it just, you know, I everyone really, I want to say soft-pedaled. Uh, there were definitely some people fighting at the back, trying to stay in touch. But there, I felt like there were opportunities to at least test. Um, I joked around on Twitter about how there was a, a cop who was just strutting down the side of the road with zero, like uphill, uh, with zero awareness of the race coming around him. And I thought that that could have been a, a good opportunity to kind of, you know, ride right up behind the cop and then cut across the road and make an attack because uh, that cop was not moving and it would have been hard to follow. But I, I just, you know, that you got to take chances, especially when you're you, this overwhelmed by one team. You know, you, if you sit on, you're, you're supporting the status quo. And I'm not trying to say no one should fight for seventh or eighth in the, in the, in the overall the Vuelta, but... I don't think if you can take a shot at this point in the, in the game that you, you shouldn't take it. Like, I would have liked to see a little more action there, so I didn't think that that was a great way for the GC contenders to, uh, to comport themselves. No, I could, I could agree with that for sure. Abby, I have a question for you. Have you ever been in a race where uh, an attack or any kind of move was discouraged by a director because it was going to jeopardize a top 10 finish? <laughs> No. <laughs> well, that's good to hear. I think a lot of people will be happy to hear that. Because <laughs> it does seem I mean, like teams ride that way in Grand Tours. It does seem like that, but also I've never been in a Grand Tour. So I think that that is a completely different. Yeah. I think perhaps it's not a fair, uh, I'm not a fair person to answer that question, but I I think it is only in a Grand Tour where you would be riding this way. Yeah, yeah. And it is frowned upon by us here the three of us are frowning the viewers the viewers well, of well, we're actually kind of smiling but, yeah. I, I will say i have known some category three uh men's racers who are very intent on defending their their seventh place at the there uh, you go okay so cat three cat three and belows <laughs> and grand tours same thing same same yeah uh all right i want to talk about a stage hunter real quick i want to give him some kudos smart move and maybe also on the other side of that call out someone's questionable judgment and i want to preface this by saying based on social media i think i'm one of the few people who kind of root for rooted for this to happen i i, I got the sense that people were rooting against this happening today and <laughs> on sunday stage 15 really costa took the stage win out of the breakaway 
first Grand Tour stage win, am I right, at 10 years, I believe. I believe his last Grand Tour stage win came at the Tour de France in 2013. So it had been just a little bit of time since he took a stage win. And he pulled it off today out of a, a group of, well, it was three, and then it was two, and then it was three again. So Costa, Leonard Kamna, and Santiago Buitrago got off the front of the break in the waning kilometers of stage 15. Uh, Leonard Kamna crashed, went down, uh, took a, a corner too hot. The, by the way, the broadcast said it was bad luck, and I just want to reiterate <laughs> something I said on this podcast many times before, that, that was, that's not bad luck. You know, don't take the turn like that. Anyway, good for Kamna, though. He was able to get back on and rejoin the group. And then, as if he were surprised by this, Rui Costa didn't want to do any work, and he wanted somebody else to lead out the sprint, which, if you've watched a bike race at any point over the last decade and a half, you would know that's how he is. A lot of people don't like that about him. Uh, I think it's great. I think it's entertaining. If it didn't work, he wouldn't do it. If it didn't work, bike racing would be boring as well. I mean, like, Rui Costa is the is the embodiment of what makes bike racing way more entertaining to watch than a marathon. And, you know, sorry, haters, but he's going to do it if it works. <laughs> and it worked to perfection. Somehow he got Leonard Kamna to lead out the sprint. I don't know how. They're all you know, going all over the road, playing cat and mouse. And Kamna was the one at the end who was leading the race with 300 meters to go. He put in an admirable effort. But Costa took the win in the end, and of course he did. He was in the right position. He let Kamna lead things out. So I had to tip my cap, tip my chapela, because that's what Rui Costa won today for having won the stage, uh, for the smart move of Rui Costa, not doing any work, not doing any more work than was required. I believe he also cajoled Buitrago into doing some work in that group, which Buitrago, Buitrago probably didn't need to do. Uh, but yeah, good on good on Costa for playing playing everybody he played them and you know unfortunately sorry leonard kamna but you got to know that's gonna happen right you got to know that's coming so better luck next time were people um frustrated with rui costa his tactics or that he that he's been he served time for doping so they don't want him i think it's the tactics because it was, I think it was only six months. Yeah, I think they, in they determined it was a but, supplement suspension. When I usually see the criticism of Costa, it is about the fact that he never likes to work. <laughs> he, hmm. you know, says mean things to people in breakaways to get them to do work for him, which I'm just thinking, like, good for him. If he can pull that off, I have no problem with this. Uh, Mom, he said something mean to me. <laughs> when I see criticism, that's what it usually is about Roy Costa, I think. I mean, I. I can't read people's minds, but I think that's what it is. Mm. Um, so I don't know. You know, like cycling fans hold grudges, yep. and so there might be a little bit of the absolute tiny bit that's of the true. just the headline that he did. That's do have we, a doping suspension. Do we, do we have time for a quick accidental doping uh, anecdote? Let's hear it. So this morning, my dog has oh, no. yeah, my dog my dog had a, a weird um, um, uh, microbial infection, and so she's been on doxycycline. And this morning, I cut a doxycycline tab in half on a plate, and I put it in her food bowl, and I put the other half back in the pill container. And then later in the day, I put some food on that plate and ate the plate, and it was tasty food, and I licked the plate, and the plate was very bitter, and I realized that this could potentially have been a doping positive. This is and how it all happens. this time, I've always thought these stories are ridiculous. And I'm like, 
This has I, literally happened. Yeah. I just did it. I just did it. Unfortunately, it's not yeah. cycling and I don't even think I have a USAC license right now. So um, I'm not in the testing pool and it wouldn't be a big deal. But still, I was like, wow, that could actually happen. Yep. Well, there you go. And it did. Well, it did. I hope it all gets better, Cosmo. Yeah, she's doing fine. Yeah. As soon as she got on the meds, she perked right back up. But well, that's good. I was worried for a couple of days. Uh, all right. Hope Cosmo's dog gets better. Tip of the cap to really Costa. <laughs> a opposite of the tip of the cap to Leonard Kamda. But hey, he did already win a stage. Good for him. Uh, unheralded riders. Cosmo, who you like so far in this Vuelta that maybe gets a, deserves a little more credit? Dan Otterbrooks. He's like 20, I think. Uh, he is uh, ninth on GC currently. I have to check. Um, but he has been riding really well, taking chances when it's not going to cost him a lot of time. Uh, riding smart when the potential for losing time is huge. Um, I think he's also been fighting through saddle sores or something during the race. Uh, so yeah, just a strong performance. Uh, I think he's gotten a little camera time, but maybe not as much shout out uh, around behind the Yumbo 1-2-3 as maybe he could have. Yeah, for those who don't follow every Tour de Lavender, he won last year's Tour de Lavender, the race of the future, the race that generally kind of highlights the best the best prospects in the sport. Former winners include Tadej Pogacar, Egan Bernal, and a boatload of others, and he was last year's winner. So he's a rider who has had a lot of pressure on him for some time already. If you're a Belgian 20-year-old winner of the Tour de Lavender, you better believe you're getting a lot of pressure back home. So good for Brooks in his first ever Grand Tour. He's currently holding on to that top 10. All right, let's close out the Vuelta Convo with, you know, what's ahead? How are things going to play out in this last week? Uh, There is some climbing ahead, unsurprisingly. Possibly the hardest climb in cycling awaits in this final week of the Vuelta. Stage 70. The Alto de Langliru awaits on stage 17. It's a 9 and change percent average gradient over 13K. It's absurdly difficult. And they're going over two cat ones in the run-up to it too, so they're not going to be fresh. Yeah, this is a climb where if you are having a off day or even just a mediocre day, you could lose a boatload of time. It's the sort of climb that could really end your GC hopes if you're in your third Grand Tour of the year. So American fans will probably be hoping that Sepkus is on a good day for stage 17. Because uh, if he can make it through that, then I think he can make it through anything. Uh, there's a climbing stage on stage 18. There's more climbing on stage 20. But really, that stage 17 is the, is the real big challenge for... Sepkus's GC aspirations. I think Yumbo Visma has to be pretty confident, though, that no matter what happens, if Sepkus falls apart on stage 17, I feel pretty confident personally that either Jonas Vingago or Primoz Roglic are going to be fine. The Angleroos seems like a place where Vingago could put minutes into everybody else, and only out of you know respect and mercy for his own teammate would he not do that. So we'll see. Let's close out the Vuelta conversation with the best part of the podcast. Abby, who's going to win the Vuelta? My heart says Sep, but my brain says Vinigo. Cosmo? That's that's kind of where I am. Um, I would almost say my brain is, is ready to get on the Sep train, but I already said 
I already said Vinigo last week. I have no reason to change that, despite a not amazing time trial. Um, so that's kind of where I'm going to stay, and I'll be pleasantly surprised if I'm wrong. As far as I know, my heart and my brain are connected. If they weren't, I don't think I'd be having this conversation on this podcast. <laughs> I'm all in on Sep Kuss. The only I actually think it's either Roglic or Kuss, and I really do believe that if Kuss does not win this race, it's Yumbo's fault entirely, and I think it's bad PR. And I think, as we've talked about many times before, this is a team that does a darn good job of keeping its many, many talented riders happy. Just ask Christophe Laporte during the Classics. I think they're going to ride for Sepp Kuss, and they're going to do what they can to, to put him over the top. But we'll see. we got a week to go. Obviously, if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably going to be watching, but definitely watch the last week of the race and absolutely watch the Anglerou stage, stage 17. That's going to be the big one, I think. All right, that's the Vuelta for now. We'll A week from now, we'll be back to talk about how it all played out. Let's talk C-Mac Ladies Tour. Abby? Just give us, I don't know, a quick, first of all, a quick, you know, set the scene. What happened at the race? 15, 30 seconds. Can you, can you just tell? Because, again, if you're listening to this podcast, I think you probably roughly know what happened. But set the scene for us. Yeah, it was a six-stage race in the Netherlands with one stage in Belgium, a 7.42 kilometer long time trial, pretty short. Uh, SD Works took home three stages with Lotto Capecchi winning the time trial on home soil, which was pretty cool, um, actually, to for her to race the the time trial in Leuven, uh, where the Worlds were in 2021, um, in the national champ jersey, the Belgian national champ jersey, as the world champion was pretty amazing. And then she also won the Queen stage in Valkenburg, uh, which finished top the Cowberg, where the MSO Gold Race finishes, so it was a pretty good stage. Lorena Weebus won the final stage, so that's SC Works with the 1-2-3. Um, and then Charlotte Cool won two stages, the opening... Um, the opening prologue, 2.4 kilometer long prologue, and a sprint stage on stage three. Elisa Balsamo is back in style and won the other sprint stage, stage one, ahead of Weebus and Cool, which was cool. And <laughs> uh, and that was that. So, yeah, Kapeki took the overall. Weebus was second by just five seconds, I believe, in the end. And Anna Henderson, the Brit on Yumbo Visma, took third after her teammate crashed on stage four. And uh, Rihanna Marcus had an incredible time trial, per usual, the Dutch national time trial champion, but crashed on the Valkenburg stage and uh, fell out of the general classification. So Anna Henderson made it up by third overall. Uh, All right, so lots of things to talk about here, but... First of all, I want to point out, I like time trials, but even I have limits. And if you start a race with a prologue, I don't think you should have a time trial on stage two. Just hold off until like stage it's four little, at least. Yeah. It, it, was, it was a little bit, and also like a 2.4 kilometer long prologue and then a seven kilometer long right. time trial was a bit of like they could have done a double day. Yeah, I... If you could mix it up a little bit more than that, come on, organizers. But when all was said and done, it actually was it was a pretty cool showcase of you know people's ability to go really really hard for a shorter period of time over every day. That was kind of the way that this race was won. If that if you were good at that, you're going to win the race. 
I, I think we all know that Lada Kopecki's pretty good at that, so maybe not that big of a surprise that she took the overall victory. But one thing that stood out to me, I mean, they took both Webus and Kopecki to this race. That's their, you know, their fast-finishing duo, and they managed to kind of boss the whole race with both of them getting in their, you know, getting in their, their results. Yeah. Which is not easy to do. I might push back on that a little bit because uh, Webus did not. I mean, she lost to, to Cole and she lost to Balsamo. Um, and what I thought was like the whole the whole first week, or the I thought there were some spicy sprints in this. I kind of we didn't quite have a good overhead shot of a lot of them, so maybe the views we had were a little um, misleading. But it, it definitely seemed like there was one moment um, on the stage that Balsamo won where. Kopecky was leading out, looked over her shoulder, saw Cole coming up, and immediately turned in front of her, um, right as right as the sprint was about to launch. Um, and then there was another moment where I think it was uh, Jayco was leading out. It might have been Liv. I think it was Jayco because they had the the white kids, not the yeah, purple ones. Yeah, it was Jayco. Yeah, and like they're they're well, one of the leadouts kind of did the same move back to to. Um, back to Webus, like sort of just cutting over right as she was about to launch. And that, that was the sprint that Cole won. And, you know, I've, maybe it's just a stay work season that they've been having so far, but you kind of, you kind of think every, every time a sprint stage isn't won by Lorena Webus, like Estee works must've screwed up. Um, and so, I mean, yeah. I, I think they were, I think she wrote great. I think she looked amazing up the Cowberg, but at the same time, maybe they wanted more out of this race, which is wild to say. Yeah, I I agree with you, and um, it's it's interesting watching, especially the the first stage that Balsamo won. It was SC Works was super critical of themselves actually after the race and how they messed up that lead out. But it was also a combination of that and that Ilaria Sanguinetti, the lead out rider for Balsamo, just crushed it. Like she did such an amazing job, and it was like they were one person the two of them, the way that they rode into that sprint together. Did they, did they hit um, the platonic awesome sprint see... unit? Oh yeah. Is this yes. a ro- wow. Yeah. <laughs> um, also awesome to see Balsamo winning after her like horrendous crash in, in ride London. Um, but, but yeah, all, the cool stage was a lot of, a lot of other teams getting in Weebus's way, um, which could have been her, her positioning going into it for sure. I, I don't think it was Jago's yeah, fault yeah. that Weebus was there. Um, but it was definitely, there was an interesting moment with uh, Georgia Baker leading out Letizia Padanoster and kind of getting in the way of Weebus there. And she really had to stop pedaling um, for a second, which would impede your sprint. But also worth noting that they also brought Demi Vollering to this race, but she left early due to illness. So they had they had all three of their just completely insanely strong <laughs> riders on the start line. I, I wonder, is it... Uh, this is sort of a, a broader question for you, Abby, that, that maybe is more of a placeholders or wheel talk style question, but I do wonder... Is it the location being in the low countries? Is it just that this is a world tour race? I mean, what is it that drew all those stars to this specific race in September? Why why here at the CMAC Ladies Tour? I mean, I, you can understand why they would go to the, the Tour de France Femme, but why why would there be so many heavy, heavy hitters at this race? This is uh, a really iconic race on the calendar. The Holland Ladies Tour, it's been around for a while, and a lot of prestigious riders have won it in the past. 
Um, it, part of it is that it's a world to erase. So, you know, there are opportunities for people to win. Like Kashi Niwadomo is probably there mostly because of the Valkenberg stage um, where she's she's won the Amso Gold Race, you know, in the past. Um, but like, for example, Anami Van Vluten was there because it was her first ever pro race that she raced back in 2007. So for her retiring at this race, yeah, it may not sound as beautiful as retiring at the world championships, but for her retiring here was like a full circle moment, um, where the first pro race she did, she crashed out of the first stage and DNF'd. So... <laughs> To come back, even though she didn't win it this year, she's won it twice in the past, but even though she didn't win it this year, it's still like, there's something about this race. And I think it is, a lot of it is that it's the Dutch, um, like obviously three stage wins by the Dutch and they, they love this race. It's, and it's also like, usually it's a really, really exciting race. Like we had some pretty insane finishes in the race last year. It was, yeah, really, really exciting with the final stage being taken by Misha Bredewalde on like with a late race move that was pretty cool. And Rihanna Marcus won one stage solo. So I think like you would say, okay, a, a five slash six stage race in the Netherlands in the flat. Okay. That doesn't sound super exciting, but usually it is quite exciting. And there's usually like, crosswind stages and stuff but this year we were we had a heat wave so there wasn't any winds to make things a little bit more interesting but that that does happen sometimes also usually this race is right before the worlds so like in a normal year it's a prep race for the world but like this year it's obviously like racing should be done we should have ended (laughs) in glasgow that is not the case here we are (laughs) here we are Talking about uh, Van Vloten's wrapping up her career, it like reminded me a lot of um, Johan Museu, who, rather than finish his career at Roubaix like Andrea Taffy did, did, finished at Scheldebris because I think like that was his first race or it was like it's the last classic in Belgium or something. He wanted to retire in Belgium. Yeah, uh, it certainly seemed like a, an emotional farewell for Annemiek Van Vloten and, and also a a final farewell, like not so much of a. Hey, just kidding! I'm going to come back next year. Like it really does seem like she's done, and uh, yeah, just hats off for what a career and what a last five, six, seven years of her career in particular, where she's just been, you know, year after year. It was her versus Anna Vanderbreggen, her versus SD Works, or whatever the team was called at the time. I mean, that that's what has been the dominant story for so many of the last years of of uh, racing in the women's peloton. So it'll be pretty interesting kind of wild just different to see the women's peloton to see racing without her uh, she's just been such a dominant force and hopefully somebody will arrive to challenge the sd works dominance that like she was able to do for so many of those years we'll, we'll and see, attack their p breaks yes that as well yeah i i think like I definitely shed a tear today watching her cross the line. It's going to be weird with her not in the Peloton heck in like five days at the Tour de Romandy. Um, but she's she's really changed the sport. Like she has definitely raised the bar in women's cycling. Um, she forced a lot of riders to um, rethink how they were doing things. She forced altitude training onto the Peloton. Um 
she's completely changed the game. And I think like her retiring is such a massive uh, end of an era, start of something new. Like obviously she's had Demi Bollering the last two years as, as kind of her rival, but she really embodies this, um, this age of cyclists that is kind of on the way out. And we're bringing in this new, this new era of young women who, from the beginning, from when they're starting, they're, they already know what it means to be a professional. They're already, there are already women being paid livable wages instead of having to kind of ride for free and stuff that still exists. Um, and there's still riders riding for free in the world tour, but like things are changing rapidly and she's part of this old generation that, um, had to do things a lot differently than, than the riders coming up now. So it's, yeah, it, it was cool to see her leave this way. Um, she didn't win a stage. She, she said before the race that she wasn't planning to go for the GC. And I think in the end, she just didn't have the legs, but seeing her roll across the line today to her mom and a massive crowd of supporters. And then they made a huge, to do about her on the podium and there were kids that got up and said that she was their inspiration and stuff. And I mean, she really is for so many people. Um, so it's, I don't know. It feels just like, I feel like a bit almost in denial that she's not going to be in the Peloton anymore. <laughs> Cause she's just been such a fixture for so long at this point that it's like, I don't know, Tom Brady leaving the, the one sport that he does. Who, who would believe it? <laughs> That's American football, by the way, for those who don't know who Tom Brady is. But yeah. I don't know who Tom Brady is. <laughs> I just have heard his name a lot. <laughs> Felt like it was a good comparison. I, I was, I'm really struck by that, that kind of, you know, the how different things were when she started versus now. And it's, I mean, you think about even seeing a woman's race at all, like a recap of a woman's race before a men's race was, would usually be all you get or somewhere, you know, after the race is done, they're like, here you go. You know, here's a couple seconds of footage. I, I remember particularly the the murder Hui. They had the cameras set up for the men's race and just like didn't have them on for the women's race. And now you get pretty solid coverage, at least watchable like bike race coverage, not a not a not a recap. Um, and it's it's kind of cool to see that I think a lot of the riders and Abby, you can correct me if I'm wrong. A lot of the riders racing now, like coming into their primes, had kind of developed with the ability to watch races. Uh, that that you know these this tier of riders who are now leaving or in and it's just cool yeah especially the live coverage has been just insane in the last like three years really um being able to watch that and like I was chatting with um Anna Henderson who got third at the CMAC ladies tour about does she watch the races and she said she watches every race she watches every women's race she watches every men's race because she needs to learn because she's new to the sport she doesn't know how how it works she came from ski racing not ski jumping like not like Roglic like downhill skiing but <laughs> so she's new to the sport so she she watches everything but that wasn't that used to not be how it was like it used to just be the the Olympics and like Anna Meek really rose to prominence in after her crash at the Rio Olympics where she hung on to Mara Abbott, the, the best climber in the world at the time. He hung on to her wheel over the climb and then crashed really hard on the descent. Um, but that was one of the only races that we used to get to see that we know we get to see from start to finish. And 
now we get most races at least two hours, three hours. So it's, it's pretty amazing how much has changed in her career. Cosmo, before we move on from the Simac Ladies Tour, I wanted to give you a chance to herald someone. We'll keep it on the <laughs> Dutch, though. Yeah, we didn't see uh, Van Vluten do a lot of racing, but we saw Florcha Mackay do a lot of really, really powerful, uh, like not just for the sake of attacking, but like legit threatening late attacks. Uh, none of them worked out, but there was one particular finish where it was unclear whether or not she had been caught because she got caught so close to the line. Uh, it's kind of twisting, sinuous finish. And it's, yeah, I like that type of racing. And I uh, I want to see more of it. Yeah, that was the final stage. That was weird to watch. I was like, <laughs> it was really unclear if she got caught or not. And poor Jose was trying to call it. And she also didn't know if she'd been <laughs> caught or not. And I was just like, this is chaos. Because they had like a finish line, like camera still photo. And it was like, okay, she, wait, but there's no one in it. And then it was it was all just very confusing. <laughs> All right, so that's the Vuelta. That's the CMAC Ladies Tour. We're not going to do too much of a breakdown of the Tour of Britain on this show because, to be perfectly honest, there's a lot of World Tour racing going on on both the men's and the women's side. And I don't know how much we would have to say about the Tour of Britain where Yumbo Visma was the dominant team with Olaf Koy winning stage after stage and then Olaf Koy helping propel Wad van Aert to victory in the overall courtesy of his win on stage five. So that's kind of what we would say, I think. If we had a longer conversation, it would generally boil down to that. But yeah, congrats to the Yumbo team. Congrats to Koi for being a heck of a good sprinter and, and Wafanar for taking advantage of an opportunity to grab just a few seconds, which proved enough to win the race. Carlos Rodriguez won the final stage. Yeah, there's your tour of Britain. That's kind of our overview, and, and uh, there you go. All right, let's talk about the GPs Quebec and Montreal. Let's talk racing in North America, which is two days. There's there's two days of World Tour racing in North America right now. It's not much, but hey, it's something. Woo! Once a year for two days, we get World Tour racing here in North America. Not in the United States of America, but our Close. our dear friends just across the border to the north in Canada. And we had... Both the GP Quebec and then the GP Montreal this weekend. Friday was the GP Quebec, and we just finished the GP Montreal about an hour ago before we started recording. The The Quebec race was the World Tour coming out party for Arnaud Delis, who we've talked about a fair bit on this podcast. I know we've talked about a fair bit on the placeholders as well. He's one of the really up-and-coming talents, the young lights of the men's peloton, 21 years old, and a rare star young talent from the French-speaking part of Belgium. Uh, the vast majority of the big-name Belgians that you can probably name come from the Dutch-speaking part, Flanders, but Arnaud Delis is a Walloon, which is reflected in his nickname, Le Tauro Wallon, <laughs> which he's he's a bull from Wallonia, and I was struck. I was stricken? I'm not sure. Uh, when watching the sprint in Quebec, it was very bull-like. Because he just kind of kept charging up that hill with like 300 meters to go. He was not quite, it didn't seem like he was going to be the one winning that race. And he just kept going and kept going. And by the end, 
Yeah, a pretty convincing win. And I think he's a rider who has a very good turn of speed and obviously can hold on for a little while and he can handle the climbs. Just was very promising to me. And yes, I know this is not the Vuelta. I know we're all watching the Vuelta and we may not have the energy to watch another World Tour race at the same time, Kaylee Fretz. But the the field here was darn good. I mean, he beat big names. Michael Matthews has won this race before. Michael Matthews was up there in Quebec this time. And... Arnaud Lee was able to, yeah, just kind of cruise. He, he, he put the power down and just kept going and bested, uh, and also impressive Corbin Strong, the young New Zealander. So hats off to Corbin Strong of Israel Premier Tech. And Michael Matthews up that final sprint in Quebec. I was, I was really impressed with everything Lee did, and I think it bodes well for a race like Amstel or maybe even Liège. Uh, that that's the sort of thing where you, if you can hold that effort really for that long up a you know medium gradient, it's a good it's a good sign. You might almost be underselling it. Like he wasn't in the camera shot for the overhead chopper shot until he was going from third into second at 200, 150 meters to go. Like he started the sprint like five hundred meters from the line in thirtieth place or something. Uh, and I don't know how he ended up back there to start it, but he got some teammates. They wound it up. And he just kept going. And it's just, you see the overhead and you're kind of like, what's the matter with these other two riders that he is going past like their children? And it's, yeah, it, like you said, it really bodes. I don't know a ton of other riders that could do that like that up that hill, you know, maybe Vanderpool, but yeah, strong. Yeah. It was a heck of an effort. Uh, all right. Then over to Montreal Sunday, the race we just finished watching. I think the big storyline for me was, the, the just perfect execution. Everything worked to plan for the team that won this race. Uh, they were on the front. They were the team putting everybody under pressure, dropping everybody, going up and over the uh, Mount Royal, the, the, the climb for which the city is named. Uh, and UAE eventually uh, propelled Adam Yates to his attack, which Pavel Sivakov joined. First of all, perfect timing. Uh, nobody really had enough... Uh, team support in the chasing group where there was going to be any uh, cohesion. So as soon as they were gone, I mean, it was pretty clear pretty quickly that they just weren't going to get caught because who was going to chase them down. Uh, And then really nice job by Adam Yates to take a very clear and convincing win in the sprint. It was like Sivakov was there, but he barely like he was, he was there. But as soon as Adam Yates got out of the saddle, Sivakov, basically you could see, he just said, all right, I'll just take second today. That's fine. When he time-trialed across the gap to, to Yates, which took him a bit, I think it was very much he got that wheel. It was like, cool, second place. Nice. Yeah, I'll take second. Like it was, Yeah. Uh, I actually thought UAE was riding for Hershey the entire time. I thought that would – I mean, maybe they were, but he didn't – Hershey was a presence in the in the chase after Yates got away, but he didn't look super strong. Um, so, yeah, like hats off to UAE for nailing this one to the mast. Yeah, it was unclear to me, too. I also wasn't sure. I I just knew that Rafa Micah and Brandon McNulty were working really hard for somebody on that team. That's the thing. Does it really matter (laughs) until until that final attack? Hershey is the option if the Adam Yates attack doesn't work. Who knows? But it worked out perfectly for Yates, who got his first one-day win in quite a long time. First World Tour one-day win in quite a long time. Good for Adam Yates. He's had, obviously, a very good year after his impressive Tour de France. And that's it. That's it. That's your World Tour racing schedule in North America. Two days. That's where we are, unfortunately, but at least they were entertaining. Mountain biking. Cyclocross World Cup's coming up. The uh, the Cycling World Headquarters of West Virginia hosts uh, 
the next mountain bike world cup. And then we go to Mont St. Anne, which is, it's not far from Quebec. It's also in Quebec. I got internet corrected about this as well. Uh, justifiably. Uh, but yeah, there's, there's bike racing in North America around this time of year. It's just, there isn't much of it. You're right. I like the, the image that popped into my head when you kind of, I think you were jokingly calling West Virginia sort of the world center. Yes. Uh, and I, for my, the first thing that popped in my head was like the UCI headquarters in Eigel in Switzerland, just being like dropped into the middle of West Virginia. What would that be like? And like, what if David Lapartien had to live in West Virginia? That would and be amazing. Be pretty cool. Yeah, what if we had that? I don't know. Okay, UCI holler up there. Yeah, heck yeah. All right, that's it for us today. We've been serious, pretty serious at least, uh, and hope you've enjoyed the show. Hope you have a chance to watch all the racing this week at the Vuelta, where Sepp Kuss will be doing his darndest to hold on to that red jersey. Abby, Cosmo, thanks so much for joining us. Great to be here, Dan. Yeah. And we'll be seeing you. See you next time.